This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This is the Science Podcast for March 11th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. And this week, we have a special retrospective issue on the COVID-19 pandemic, two years on. First up, contributing correspondent Gretchen Vogel. We talk about what's been learned from scanning sewage for COVID-19 RNA. And now that there are so many monitoring stations in place, what else can we do with our wastewater? Next, we have researcher Katya Cole. She wrote a review this week on the evolving epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2. We talk about the most important questions that epidemiologists had at different time points over the course of the pandemic and how looking back at these questions can help us navigate future pandemic threats. Pretty early on in the pandemic, it was known that COVID-19 infections could be observed by looking at the levels of the virus in wastewater, basically what was coming out of bathrooms and going into the sewer. As part of our special package on the COVID-19 pandemic two years on, News' contributing correspondent Gretchen Vogel wrote about the systems that have been set up to do this and how they're being used. Hi, Gretchen. Hi. So were people looking to see whether or not this was going into sewers pretty early on? They have this idea that, oh, if people are infected with it, they'll probably end up in our wastewater. People found out pretty soon after the virus emerged that the virus was also shed in feces and to less extent in urine. And because a number of other viruses have been detected in wastewater, for example, there's a lot of polio monitoring that's done from wastewater, people immediately realized that this could be a tool to help observe what's going on with SARS-CoV-2. So there were some monitoring systems already in place that could adapt to look for SARS-CoV-2, but now that we're two years on, you know, how many people are doing this? This is a pretty widespread practice. Yes, it was quickly picked up around the world in both wealthy countries and less wealthy countries. There's a dashboard online that you can see everywhere that's doing this. And that dashboard includes at least 58 countries at this point. And what do the data look like? Is it how many people have it or just a relative measure over previous months? It's a relative measure. That's been one of the tricky things about this technology, because if you test people who come to a clinic or to a testing station, you can tell whether that person is infected with the virus or not. Whereas in wastewater, you're testing 
potentially the wastewater from thousands or even millions of people. And those numbers then are a lot more fuzzy. You can tell pretty easily whether the trend is going up or down or staying stable, but actual numbers, you have to do a lot of number crunching to convert the data that you get from wastewater into, say, numbers of cases. It's kind of a, a very wide angle view of what's going on with coronavirus in a particular location. Correct. And it also seems like it would spur more broad policies as opposed to, you know, finding specific people, quarantining specific people. Interestingly, it's actually been most useful at a smaller scale. It was used quite a bit on college campuses, for example. There were several cases where monitoring of wastewater from residence halls picked up cases that had not yet been recognized. So somebody was infected but didn't yet realize it. And that tipped the health department off and they could test everybody in the residence hall and then isolate the person or people who were infected before they could infect too many more people. So that's a small scale example where it's been quite useful. And then at the city level, for example, places like Amsterdam or also Houston have used wastewater to find areas where it looks like testing is not picking up all the cases. So the wastewater levels of virus were higher than would be suggested by the number of positive cases in that neighborhood or region. And then they know that it's probably a good idea to ramp up testing in that region. And this has also been used in places that are or were doing COVID zero policy. So how does it work in that setting? So one of the easiest ways to use wastewater is just to say it's there or it's not there. In places like Australia and New Zealand, where they really tried to keep the virus under very tight control for a long time, that was a key part of their strategy. They tested the wastewater, and as soon as they found a positive, they would look more carefully and see if they could figure out what might be going on, if there were any people in that region who had tested positive and whether an outbreak might be brewing. And again, ramp up testing. You can't isolate people based on wastewater, but you can understand where you might need to focus your efforts to keep the virus under control. Yeah. But it's not super straightforward to say, oh, here's how much coronavirus is in the city, or even necessarily compare from one location to another because the sewers, the sewage is not all the same. It's really difficult to compare output between different sites. For example, the New York City data is hard to compare with data from Missouri or California. The technology uses the same kind of PCR test that lots of clinical testing uses. So it picks up snippets of the viral RNA in the sample and then sort of copies them. And the number of copies that it takes to find a detectable signal can kind of give you a, an idea of how much RNA is there, how much of the virus is in that sample. But the final number depends a lot on when you took the sample, how it was transported, how it was stored, which techniques you used to concentrate it. There's a lot of variables. Can wastewater monitoring help us track different variants, what's come before and maybe what's coming in the future? That's one of the things it's fairly good at is tracking how the mix of variants, for example, is changing in a particular place. But to do that, you have to know what you're looking for. The way most testing works is that it uses, as I said, PCR. And the way that works is it looks for specific stretches of RNA. And so 
to identify the Omicron strain, you have to have a specific probe that picks up the Omicron strain. And if you don't have that in your testing protocol, then you're going to miss the Omicron strain. Once the Omicron strain was identified, well, then everybody around the world added those probes and were quickly able to pick up how much Omicron was in their systems. But to pick up new variants is quite a bit trickier. You have to then do some extra sequencing of your samples, which is possible, but requires a sort of different approach. How do variants or even differences between variants affect what happens with wastewater monitoring? As things change and the virus continues to evolve, scientists are going to continue to learn more about what that means for their wastewater analysis. One of the kind of interesting things that showed up in the Omicron wave was that even though the wastewater levels were off the charts high, like everybody had to redo their graphs to make, <laughs> make it possible to do levels that were 10 times higher than they'd ever seen before, they still think that those graphs were probably underestimating the number of cases that actually happened. A bunch of places around the world, in Canada, in Switzerland, in multiple states across the U.S., in Denmark, the wastewater actually lagged a bit behind the case numbers. And they think that's just because less virus was being shed. That might be because of some difference inherent to Omicron, but it might also be because most populations where they were monitoring had so much more immune protection, whether from vaccines or previous infection. And so that people were simply shedding less virus because they had some basic immune protection. And so then even if they were infected, the infection was not as extreme and they shed less virus. And so then that skewed some of the calculations that the wastewater monitoring had been making. And so they had to adjust again after Omicron came through to try and recalibrate what the wastewater numbers to actual case ratio might mean. Finding variants in wastewater is a challenge. You need to know what sequence to look for. What, what are some of the workarounds that researchers have figured out and how do we know it's an important variant if they do pick one up? One of the tricky parts of sequencing wastewater is that you have a bunch of degraded viral particles rather than whole viral genomes. And so the way sequencing works is that sequencing machines copy little tiny pieces of a genome and then piece them back together using computer programs. And that doesn't work very well when you are trying to sequence this huge potpourri of, <laughs> of viral particles coming from thousands or millions of people. You just can't put the puzzle pieces back together. Two different groups figured out independently that instead it might make sense to focus specifically on one part of the viral genome that's called the receptor binding domain. And this is part of the spike protein that helps the virus enter cells. And it, it has been evolving quite quickly. And that's one of the things that has been evolving in the different variants. So the alpha and the delta and the omicron. And they realized that they could focus explicitly on this little section of the viral genome. They made primers that pick up the beginning and the end of that section, and then they were able to focus their sequencing efforts right onto that part of the genome. And doing that, they found a bunch of really weird sequences that had mutations and changes that had been seen a couple of times, but never all together, and definitely were very rare in patients at the time that they discovered them. So this was back more than a year ago, February and March 2021. And they said, whoa, what is this? <laughs> um, and they looked a little bit more carefully, but they couldn't really figure out what was going on. Where were they found? 
the strains were found in St. Louis and in the New York City. And the St. Louis strain then disappeared after about six weeks, but the New York City strains are still there. And the researchers in Missouri and in New York have teamed up to try and figure out what's going on. They did a bunch of testing of other DNA in the wastewater in New York and found lots of human, as you'd expect, and then a bunch of different animals, including pigs and cows and sheep, which is probably from food rather than actual animals that are living in those watersheds. But then they also found rats. So the idea there was that you could not rule out that this was a coronavirus that was coming from infected animals. Exactly. One of the one of the possibilities is that these strains are a version of the coronavirus that has infected rats in those sewer systems and that it's circulating in those rat populations. But in one of the sewer sheds where they found this cryptic strain, they didn't find any rat DNA. So that suggests that it's not only rats. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's squirrels, right? Right. Squirrels, who knows, raccoons. They haven't been able to nail down a clear answer. As they told me, they said, none of the pieces make sense yet. Have they really only been able to sequence that one specific segment of spike? Can they branch out and get the whole genome of that particular variant? No, that's really, really difficult to do. Okay. They can try and pick up other parts of the genome with other sequencing techniques, but it's really hard then to figure out which pieces fit together. So that's one of the difficulties in trying to trace back where this might be coming from. The other strong possibility is that it might be coming from a patient who's infected, but has had trouble clearing the virus. A lot of the mutations that they see look like they are immune escape changes. So changes that help the spike protein evade the immune system. And it turns out that a lot of those changes are very similar to what is seen in Omicron, even though these strains have been around before Omicron took over. They think that that's a, an example of convergent evolution. So Omicron probably emerged in some way from perhaps a patient that was unable to clear the virus and then the virus kept mutating and then infected other people. The possibly reassuring news about these strange variants in New York is that they seem to have stayed put. They're still in the sewer sheds that they originally were found in, but they have not expanded to other sewer sheds. So it doesn't seem like these particular strains are very good at wide transmission. Really interesting. This kind of gets to the point that you make in your article that it might actually be even more useful to do this kind of monitoring as things quiet down, as fewer people are infected or that we know about. Going forward, as we are on the tail end of the Omicron surge, hopefully, a lot of places are, are lifting restrictions and are really dialing way back on testing. So a lot of experts say that wastewater monitoring is going to take an even more important role going forward. Because as people stop getting tested or use home tests that don't get reported to health departments or whatever, then wastewater testing is going to be a key tool to sort of keep track of what's happening in different communities and to keep an eye on whether rates might be going back up. And if they do start to increase, to try to figure out why, is this a new variant or is immune protection waning from the vaccines? Do we need to maybe do another round of boosters or take other measures to try and reduce the spread? You mentioned that polio is monitored this way. If there are a lot more of these types of monitoring systems being set up, what other things could we keep an eye on? Any other infections or chemicals? Yes, actually, that's one thing that researchers are pointing to as well. Now that a lot more places have set up this monitoring, it's not too difficult then to add 
more probes to your sample processing and test for influenza or norovirus or all sorts of other pathogens, including, for example, antibiotic-resistant bacteria is one thing that a lot of places are hoping to keep tabs on. You can also use it to keep track of illicit drug use, which has been done in a number of places already, even pre-pandemic. But now that more regions have set up their monitoring systems, they're adding a lot of other things that you can fairly easily test for. And so people are optimistic that this will be helpful to keep other diseases under control as well. For example, I spoke with researchers in Bangalore, India, and their diarrheal diseases are a huge problem and a, a huge killer of, especially of children. Now that they have their wastewater monitoring set up for the new coronavirus, they're hoping to be able to add monitoring for some of these diarrheal diseases and, and be able to understand them better. Thanks, Gretchen. Thank you. It was great to talk. Gretchen Vogel is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to the story we discussed and the whole package on the coronavirus pandemic two years in at science.org slash podcast. Up next, Katia Cole talks about what it's like as an epidemiologist to get to know a pandemic. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. As we come up on the two-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, science is looking back at what researchers have accomplished and the work still to be done. With me today is Katya Cole, Associate Professor of Biology at Emory University. She wrote a review on the changing epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 over the course of the pandemic. Hi, Katya. Hi, Sarah. Was this hard for you to write? I actually found it kind of painful to look at all these milestones along our journey from 2020 seeing it laid out in review in chapters and tables. I mean, how did that how did that work for you? It was an interesting experience. When we decided to lay out this review chronologically, we really had to go back to some of our early experiences, which we had perhaps repressed a little bit. Yeah. Such as trying to go to the grocery store to buy toilet paper, which was not available, flattening the curve. Some of us had temporarily forgotten about. And so it was an interesting journey, you know, looking at the literature again, you know, to see what questions people were asking at what times. Yeah, absolutely. This graph that just shows the questions that were on the minds of epidemiologists and really the public over the course of these two years just really takes you on that journey. Mm -hmm. Early questions like, can this virus cause a pandemic? Can it be contained all the way back in January 2020? Going to April 2020, how is it transmitted? Is it coming through aerosols or touch? Are we going to be wiping groceries forever? And then much later, the questions are things like, 
How effective are the vaccines that we've developed? Are they going to hold up as the virus changes? Do you see those questions on that graph as big turning points for epidemiologists, or are these more like what we were all thinking about at the time? I think both. Yeah. Very much so. So I remember actually early February or late January 2020 when the chair of my department asked me, so this SARS-CoV-2 virus, is this going to impact our lives? And I remember saying, yes, we'll probably all be wearing masks. Wow. (laughs) It will definitely impact our lives because at that point, we already knew how much circulation was going on. We were starting to understand that people could transmit without actually showing symptoms or before they showed symptoms. But these were questions that, of course, the public is very interested in, in terms of how to protect themselves, especially when there were no vaccines around at that point yet. And then, of course, it was very interesting to epidemiologists and disease modelers to try to get an idea for how quickly this virus would be able to to spread and how much of a disruption it would be and how much mortality would result from it. Oh, absolutely. Everybody was really concerned, not only with just whether or not they should touch their own face, but how deadly this virus could be. Kind of a basic question here. What is the role of epidemiologists in a pandemic like this? Are you supposed to answer people's questions about, you know, is this going to impact my life or does it even change over time? That's a big question. Existential questions for you here. (laughs) I think during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic over the last two years, epidemiologists really played a number of different roles. Their analyses were really important for figuring out that there were going to have to be some effectively government-initiated changes in contact patterns, closing down of schools, social distancing measures, et cetera. So that was brought about really by epidemiological analyses and projections. I think if those hadn't happened when they did happen, then those sort of regulations would have been imposed much later on, and there would have actually been much greater loss of life. The modeling had to change as new information came online, as we learned more about Mm SARS-CoV-2. But also the virus has been a moving target. How has that affected the kind of modeling people do, the kind of calculations that need to happen? The virus has been changing, of course, and evolving kind of in various ways. We anticipate, you know, epidemiologists, evolutionary biologists anticipate that a virus that enters a new host population first kind of starts adapting to that host population in terms of becoming more more readily transmissible. And then as immunity in the population builds up, the selection pressures change. And if the virus has the capacity to change antigenically, antigenic variants will have a selective advantage. We're really seeing this play out during this pandemic with some of the early variants like Alpha and Delta clearly kind of being more transmissible. Of course, D614G in the very beginning. And then we see major spread of Omicron just over the last several months. A lot of its fitness really comes about from immune escape. Instead of saying, I'm going to go find all the people I can, it's saying, well, I now have to avoid these immune systems from all the people that I can. That's the adaptation that we've seen. Mm -hmm. How does that relate to virulence, to how dangerous it is to people's health? There's been a lot of discussions about virulence. um, And I think historically, what is thought in terms of virulence, in terms of evolutionary thinking, back in the 1930s, 1940s, people thought that viruses or other pathogens should evolve to be less virulent over time because it's not in the best interest for a pathogen to actually kill its host if it needs the host alive to actually transmit. That's really been replaced in the last 30, 40, 50 years even, um, so it's not a recent development, to a broader understanding of, well, 
a virus that is slightly more virulent might actually have a huge transmission advantage, right? Because there's a higher viral load for some of these variants, you know, that might be slightly more virulent or could actually be even less virulent. And so what selection really acts on is transmission potential. It's not on this phenotype of virulence. Right. So its fitness doesn't depend on how sick it makes you, right? Its fitness depends on how many more of itself it can make. Right. Exactly. But how many more it can make might be impacted by its virulence. Yeah. So you said you had to revisit early times, what you were writing about, what you were reading, what people were publishing. Do you remember what piece of information about this virus you were most interested in knowing? The question that really burned in your mind. Do you mean in the first, just in the first month or two? Yeah, the first few months. Yeah. What were you most interested in knowing about it? It was really about how much transmission was actually going on. There was a huge amount of underreporting, and there were many people who got infected who were never symptomatic. And so just this question of, you know, how much virus is actually circulating and is there a possibility for containment as there was with um, SARS-CoV-1? So that was the dominant question very early on. And then I think that really opened up these other questions as we as we as a community realized, or we as a global population realized that this virus was was going to be here to stay. I think one of the major pressing questions in those first six months was really about reinfection potential. Because if this was going to be a virus like measles, where after a single infection, you're immune, what that would mean is that in the long term, the number of people who would be infected would actually be relatively low because of immunity that's built up in the population. What we saw from initial accounts of reinfection, and then by looking also at seasonal coronaviruses, and then tracking antibody levels and so forth, that there was this indication that immunity to this virus, there was going to be some immunity present, but it wasn't going to be long-term immunity to reinfection, at least. It does seem, though, that with vaccination also is individuals who have gotten previously infected, that their subsequent infections are most likely going to be milder. This graph goes up to January 2022. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the big questions that are going to come in the next six months? When we were writing this review piece, we started writing it in the fall of 2021 when Omicron hadn't been circulating. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And then, of course, when we had the opportunity to revise the piece, Omicron was was circulating. (laughs) So we had to add a lot of material. And so projecting into the future or questions into the future are are there going to be a lot more Omicrons? These uh, variants, which seem to come almost out of nowhere, that don't come from a variant that's currently circulating at very high frequencies, but it's actually coming from that this most recent common ancestor is, is much earlier in time, like a year ago or eight months ago. If you had asked any of us who wrote this paper, how would we project this virus to evolve in the next three or four months? I don't think any of us would have really thought to predict Omicron. Yeah, The phenotypes of Omicron make sense that they provide a selective advantage, that there's this a tremendous amount of immune escape. But we were surprised what it, what it looked like genetically in terms of how genetically distant it was from Delta. What I, I guess I'm worried about in the future is that the other variants like Omicron could evolve and really spread very rapidly through the population. If that happens, hopefully like Omicron, that it would cause milder disease than other variants, previous variants. But we don't know that, right? Yeah. Previous infection and vaccination, even though with a variant like Omicron, 
there's escape from immunity in terms of Omicron being able to reinfect people who have gotten previously infected and people who have gotten vaccinated. It's also not causing severe disease in those individuals. I mean, in part because it's intrinsically kind of milder of infection, but also because of the pre-existing kind of immunity in those individuals. How can what epidemiologists, the field has been through in this pandemic, what, you know, what we've learned, be applied in the future to stop or at least mitigate the next non-SARS-CoV-2 pandemic? We had this question in mind also when, when we were writing up this review and really coming up with that figure one timeline, because it's very it's very general to pandemic viruses. Can whatever, you know, zoonotic virus, spillover virus be contained? Will it be able to cause a pandemic? Do NPIs work? And which ones do? NPIs is uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Exactly. Um, how is the virus transmitted? What we really wanted to do with this review also is if there is another pandemic within our lifespan or kind of even, you know, following that, can we use this as a little bit of a roadmap? Which questions should be asked when? And I know with SARS-CoV-1, for example, you know, some of these questions were initially asked as that virus was circulating, but none of the later ones ended up being asked as much just because SARS-CoV-1 did not end up causing the global pandemic. So this can not only help people think about what's happening, but guide what kind of data needs to be collected, what people should be looking for. Exactly. One thing that we didn't focus on this that much in this review was really important epidemiological findings that focused on things like quantifying the infection fatality rate. How is that different across different age groups or male, female, et cetera? So I think that these questions, which we haven't included in this figure or timeline, that would be incredibly important to address for other emerging pathogens as well. Oh, yeah. Age is especially important for this one. Absolutely. One of the things that epidemiologists do is model out from the facts on the ground what is likely to happen and what interventions might prevent disease or overloading the hospitals, those kinds of things. Do you feel like there are some lessons learned in how policymakers and epidemiologists work together or don't in this pandemic? That is a really great question. And I mean, my perspective on this is much more of a, of a I guess, U.S.-centered perspective than I'd like to be able to provide, just because I've seen mostly the interaction between epidemiological understanding and policymaking really play out in the United States and in my home state of Georgia here. I guess one thing that I've started to appreciate during this pandemic is that policymakers are making policy based on a number of different priorities. A lot of those are, you know, economic. And so this is a very difficult question for, for me to address as I haven't really done much policy analysis at all. But at the same time, I mean, I think especially early on when a virus like this is spreading exponentially, it's really important to implement control measures early on because it's much more difficult later on when you're actually starting to see the cases because the levels are already so high at that point. And so there's a lot of benefit to implementing control measures early on. But, but in that case, it's, it's very hard for, I think, policymakers to convince their constituents, right, or their citizens to, that that's actually necessary at that point in time. Yeah, super early lockdown is a hard sell, right? It, it is. It, it very much is. And closing schools you know, down um, with you know, two working parents, et cetera, you know, it's very hard when there's very little circulating, right? Yeah. But it makes sense to, to implement those measures really early on. And there's some, some really nice modeling studies that have kind of shown, well, if we had 
implemented these control measures, you know, a week earlier, how many lives would have been saved? Yeah. And the number is tremendous. Thanks, Katya. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. Katya Cole is an associate professor of biology at Emory University. She wrote a review on evolving epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 as part of a special issue reflecting on the pandemic after two years. Also in this section are several more reviews on things like immunology of COVID-19, the road ahead for vaccinations against the disease, and lessons on stopping pandemics before they start. In this week's commentary section, we have reflections on ending the pandemic in all countries, not just the wealthy ones, and letters from next-gen science contributors talking about their lessons from this time, kind of a pandemic 101 for students. There's so much more to this package, so please check it all out at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Presby with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.